Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, when Bill Burns of UFO Magazine joins us on the Paracast, you never know what he's going to say. So we've asked him to join us to talk about the aftermath of the book, The Day After Roswell, once again, to answer the critics as we approach the 60th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Coming up on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. As we progress in discussing this particular case, we've asked a number of our guests about Colonel Corso and about what he wrote about the book The Day After Roswell that you co-wrote with him. And the impression I get is that a lot of these people and people like Kevin Randall and others do not believe anything that Corso said. They think that he faked the whole thing. So now that you're confronted with this particular situation, certainly we don't have Lieutenant Colonel or Colonel Corso here to defend himself. What do you have to say on the subject? Well, the fact is he didn't fake it. For all the people who are criticizing that it never happened, go to Arthur Trudeau's own memoirs. They are there in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. They're available to anybody. And although Trudeau doesn't talk about UFOs and alien artifacts and Roswell, what he does talk about is some mind-boggling stuff, including the central core of the late Phil Corso's argument, which was that the Army came into possession of technology that was not invented in the United States. And they used the term here. Corso said the term here had a very loaded meaning. It meant planet Earth. And that they took this technology to the Armed Services Committee, specifically Strom Thurmond, which is why Strom Thurmond contributed the forward, the first forward to the book. We could talk about that. And Strom Thurmond said to Arthur Trudeau, basically, we're not going to give you a dime for this stuff, because unless this stuff carries a patent from a United States company, we're not going to put a dime into it. So your job is to get this stuff patented by American companies. And so there was a the buzzword, the code word in Army R&D was not invented here. And Corso was in charge of, and he spent 30 days at the foreign technology desk. 30 days. And he was in Army R&D for two years. He spent 30 days at the uh, foreign technology desk, and then he disappears. Now, a lot of the critics say, oh, my God, where did he go? We looked at his records. Corso, how could you do all this in 30 days? You can't do all this in 30 days. Well, he didn't do all this in 30 days. What happened was he went black. He basically disappeared and became the de facto deputy director of Army R&D under Trudeau. And, I mean, he I'll say this not in a demeaning way. He wasn't any exotic technology genius. He never claimed to be. In effect, what he was, as bad as this sounds, was the bag man. Trudeau had to have somebody. Trudeau could not go running around from defense contractor to defense contractor with a bag full of money and a bunch of alien technology from the crash at Roswell. He had to have somebody who could walk around with budgetary authority to make promises, literally with this junk, which was it was debris from the crash, 
in whatever portfolio he was carrying show up at whatever laboratory he had to show up, whether it was at Monsanto or IBM or Columbia University's um, Laser Technology Laboratory, wherever he had to show up. And sometimes alongside Trudeau, sometimes alone, but wherever he had to show up and basically be the guy to say, this is the stuff. You get me a weapon, you can keep the patent and we'll pay you for it. Because that was the deal that Trudeau had struck with Senator Strom Thurmond. And in fact, when Trudeau himself met with General MacArthur, now MacArthur had, after he left the army, after Truman fired him, remember that story, he left the army and he became, I think it was a chairman of Sperry Rand. Trudeau had lunch, big luncheon with him. Now, remember what MacArthur said, very telling. He told the New York Times this. He said, the next war we will fight will be in outer space. True. He was right. He was a visionary. And insofar as that's concerned, there are no UFOs flying around at this point. The next war we'll fight in outer space. And guess what, gentlemen? That war, if I may plug my own book, Space Wars, that war has already begun. And in fact, in the news just last week was the news of a Chinese missile mm-hmm. shooting down one of its own satellites and Chinese high-energy lasers painting our satellites and our high-energy lasers shooting down our satellites. You know, you've raised our, about a number of different things here. You've raised that's a number right, of different things. I'm going to say one thing. Sure. That's the war. So that war in outer space has begun. That was the first thing MacArthur said. The second thing MacArthur said was it will be a war with extraterrestrials, and that was in the New York Times. Now, here's the general who led the United States in the Pacific in World War II, was winning the Korean War, wouldn't drop the atomic bomb, and Corso, let me tell you, was on MacArthur's staff at the beginning of the war. All right, Bill, I I have to ask you something, though. I've got to play the devil's advocate here for a moment, because I think a a number of our listeners, when they hear the term technology not from here, Mm -hmm. and then we have the statement of MacArthur saying, that the next war is going to be fought in outer space, one could fill in the spaces there and say, maybe what we're talking about is the infamous Project Paperclip and Werner von Braun. I mean, perhaps there's a possibility that that's what we're talking about, given that we've got German technology and von Braun at the center of that, who then basically heads up most of the American effort to get into space. Yes, on for half of that. But okay. no, on the other half, because remember, all that stuff is 1947, 1946, and 1947. We're talking about 1957, 1958, and 1959. The idea that this Werner von Braun stuff would be new, it wasn't new. Uh, the Russians had already launched Sputnik. We were busy trying to launch. Uh, the Navy was trying to launch its own satellite. The Army was trying to launch its own satellite. These are the days before NASA. So, um, indeed, MacArthur was right, and not invented here did mean not invented in the United States, but there was also this reverence, and this is what Corso said, that not invented here meant not invented on this planet. 
and mm-hmm. that's what he said it meant. Now, here was Corso at the center. He'd worked for MacArthur on his staff in the Korean War. He was an Army intelligence officer. He, he supported Trudeau in this very famous battle between Arthur Trudeau and Alan Dulles over the penetration of the um, um, Gale inspiring, Gale was a Nazi, of Gale inspiring by the Stasi in East Germany. It's a big fight. So Corso is really at the center of all this stuff. And he reads this cadre of um, army officers while he was on, and he's on Eisenhower's national security staff. He wasn't on the National Security Council, which is a big bone that, that uh, Stan Friedman had to pick about this. And I could, I could basically unpick that bone for you if, <laughs> if you want. But he wasn't on the National Security Council, he was on the National Security staff. And on that staff, he leads this kind of group of officers to go to Ike and say, listen, Trudeau's getting a bad rap. He shouldn't have to retire from the Army. He's a great general. And in fact, the folks at in the Senate thought so highly of him that uh, Strom Thurmond, who, uh, who liked Trudeau, said to Ike, you will not get one more general out of the Senate, no more stars, unless Trudeau gets his third star and uh, he gets promoted. And so Eisenhower's compromise was Arthur Trudeau goes to Army R&D, which in the days before, and I've got the records to show this, which in the days before Trudeau got there was this backwater, this jerkwater little command, right? It's like, it's like, fine, spend your final days at some railroad station in South Jersey. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is the Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen. Thanks.
Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're talking to William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine and co-author with the late Philip Corso of The Day After Roswell. One of the issues that we hear, and I think Kevin Randall brought it up several times, is that he felt that Corso misrepresented his credentials in different ways. The big question was, was he a lieutenant colonel or a colonel? I mean, that was one right, of the right. issues. Okay, that was one of the issues. Right. And the fact is that at least what I was given to believe by the folks who represented Corso to me is that he was a reserve officer. He was not an active duty officer. He went into the reserve officer's training program at the outset of World War II. He was always in the reserves. Obviously, they activated the reserves for World War II, duh, and Corso stayed in the Army after his reserve commitment came up when World War II ended, and he went to intelligence school at Fort Riley, and then he was back in active duty when he was... Um, on MacArthur's staff in Korea in the late 1940s, right, 1949, 1950. And then he was an active duty, of course, when he was working for Eisenhower at the White House. When he reached Army R&D, it was his, really his last tour of duty. And what Corso was promised, the CIA, first of all, he was promised two things. The Army went to Corso and said, look, we want you to be the intelligence commandant of the United States contingent in Vietnam. This is, this is in 1962. We want you to be there in Vietnam and uh, be the commander of, of the Army intelligence. And Arthur Trudeau had already been asked to stay in the Army, not retire, and be the CNC uh, of, in Vietnam, the commanding general. It, it was uh, Taylor, it was Abrams, it was Westmoreland, but they wanted Trudeau. And Trudeau said, no, he said, I'll go, but if I go, I'm going to win. I'm not going with this strategy you have, this, 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 this kind of crazy strategy you have of, of fighting a war from green zones and orange zones and red zones. You go in there, you fight the war like Korea, the way MacArthur fought it. And they said, goodbye, take a hike, you're out of here, go put in your papers, go retire. Corso was so incensed that when they asked him, he said, I'm not going to go fight a war that we're going to lose. Now, he basically, they said, you, you too are out of here. So he finished up his tour, and that's when Strom Thurmond, and then the CIA came to Corso, and they said, we want you to work for us. And Corso really told them to their faces, and by them, I'm thinking James Jesus Angleton, why would I work for a communist organization, which blew them away, and this is like 1963. And so Corso retired. When you retire, or at, at when he retired, he received a retirement rank of colonel. And that's the discrepancy between is he hmm. Colonel Corso, is he Lieutenant Colonel Corso. Now, I don't know 40 years later, this is now, what, 43 years after the fact. I don't know if in Kevin Randall's world they still do that. I'm not in the military. But when Corso retired, he was given the retirement rank of colonel. And he was Colonel Corso at the end. In his years of service, he was a lieutenant colonel. So that was one big area that Kevin had an issue with. Here was the other area. Because I was there when Kevin Randall walked out when Corso made the presentation. We were in Roswell. It was July 1997. It was the 50th anniversary. And Corso was making this presentation. 
And one of the questions to Corso was, tell us about the Philadelphia experiment. And Corso began to say, Arlie Burke told me, because about what happened at the experiment. And it was kind of a Pandora's box. What Corso was going to say, because it's in the book, was that they didn't know what there was, but that the whole point about the Philadelphia experiment was that it was a hoax perpetrated by this guy, Carl Allende, Carl Allen, making it up with Ray Bradbury. And it was in Kevin Randall's book on great hoaxes, right? So let's get that out of the way. What Arlie Burke said to Corso was that when they were degaussing the hull of the USS Eldridge, two of the sailors, because the heat was so intense, I mean, imagine, David, these huge degaussers, right, coming out of those huge degaussers, because they are trying to find a way to demagnetize the hulls so that when the United States has to invade the home waters of Japan, and the Japanese have these mines, these mines. Yeah. right, which are activated, right. and, and anybody who knows anything about boats, that ships, especially metal ships, knows that a boat hull in the water is acts like a battery, right? Mm-hmm. It's a battery. Sure, you, sure. You, uh, you've got current running around this thing. So if you can find a way to reduce the magnetic signature of that current, you can get closer to the mines and not have to worry because in some of these huge battleships we were, we were going to float in there in the aircraft carriers off station, they were worried that with the amount of electricity floating through there and, and the, magnetic, or the magnetic field around those hulls, they'd be setting off mines and they couldn't have a minesweeper get in there. So that was the experiment. didn't work because you had these two crewmen on the deck of the Eldridge who refused to the deck. And the Eldridge was so damaged when her superstructure melted that she went down the channel of the intercoastal waterway from the Philadelphia Navy Yard down to Norfolk for a refit into the fog. So the story was she disappeared into the fog. She traveled in time. What Burke had told Corso, and this is what I've got proof of this. What Bertha told Corso was that for a moment the Eldridge winked out of radar and they didn't know why. I mean, now we know why, but, but this is 1944, 19, we didn't know why. And, um, I mean, radar was still relatively new, right? I mean, invented by Tesla, sure, all the way back in the turn of the beginning of the century, but we didn't even use it until, until the late 30s, early 40s. So here's a case where um, the Eldridge winks out, and that's partly what Corso was talking about. Randall was so incensed at this point, because Corso would even not even dismiss it as a hoax, he gets up and walks out. So much for Kevin Randall, and so much for Kevin Randall's uh, objectivity. Well, I can see him getting upset about this, Bill, because but I part can of see the issue... Him, well, I mean... Why walk out? What's the point of walking out? Hear well, what I, the person's going to say. Well, I would agree with that. There's been a lot of controversy around the, the Philadelphia experiment. One of the issues, of course, being that we don't have any significant amount of witness testimony. I mean, there was a ship full of people. It was a ship full of people. She went into the fog. She disappeared. And did she travel in time? Obviously not, because she shows up in Norfolk, Virginia, and the story was concocted as a hoax. However, Morris K. Jessup, remember him, Case for UFOs? Mm-hmm. Morris K. Jessup writes, building on this Carl Allen story, about how the, let me tell you how important this becomes. He writes how the ship disappeared in time. Well, the Navy, the Office of uh, Naval Leave, the ONR, was so nervous 
nervous about this story, they engaged, they asked, they, they ordered two of their officers, one of whom was a man, uh, was a naval commodore, George Hoover. George Hoover is very well known. He's dead. He died of Alzheimer's disease. He's very well known. George Hoover was on a naval surveillance vessel, and he saw the Japanese fleet on its way to Pearl Harbor radio, the ship radios the information to Pearl, and Pearl says, stand down, don't report it. That tells you something. Hmm. Then, after he retired from the Navy, George Hoover was Walt Disney's consultant for the whole Man in Space series. Remember Disney World, Man in Space in the 1950s? Hoover, oh, yeah. was, the, Hoover was the consultant for that. Hoover invents the heads-up display for naval fighters. So you're not talking about a flake or a crank. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to William Burns. He is the publisher of UFO Magazine at ufomagmag.com, co-author with the late Philip Corso of The Day After Roswell. You made a statement before, and I'm going to ask you to point to where I can verify this. You stated that MacArthur stated in the New York Times that not only would the next war be fought in space, but that it would be fought with extraterrestrials. Is that verifiable? Roswell. It's in the New York Times. I think we point to the date in the New York Times. I don't have it in front of me. You can also Google MacArthur on the web, and in one of the UFO casebook, uh, you will find the actual uh, interview that, uh, that he gave. He may have been making an offhanded statement. I mean, this is MacArthur near the end of his life. He might have been making an offhanded statement, but the fact was, he was the head of Sperry Rand. He was involved with some phenomenally secret stuff that they were doing for the government, and he was meeting on a regular basis with his old subordinate. Arthur Trudeau was a general in Korea under MacArthur's command, and Corso was in Korea under MacArthur's command on his staff. So these guys were meeting, were getting together, and for MacArthur to say that is a, it, it is a stunning, stunning thing. It's, um, it's compelling, certainly. I'll, I'll tell you, the fast way is you go to the New York Times, you want to search on the Times database, right. you look for Douglas MacArthur, this is going to come up. It's, it's 1952 is when he gave the interview. Yeah, I'm going to look that up. So here is, I believe I even saw it, I may have it somewhere, I don't know, but anyway, Here's, here's what Hoover does. Hoover researches the Philadelphia experiment, and obviously time travel, because that, that was the claim that was made, right? right? Hoover, for some reason, becomes fascinated with the subject, and he actually develops an entire, I, I've seen his library, I spoke to him, a fascinating library on time travel and extraterrestrials. He is befriended by our old friend, Ivan T. Sanderson. Ivan T. Sanderson, I have his unpublished manuscript, can't publish it because there's an estate, but I have his unpublished manuscript in Ivan T. Sanderson's book on time travel. Here's a whole chapter on the Philadelphia experiment and its relationship to George Hoover. Why? Because Hoover, because he's working for Office of Naval Research now, he gets a hold of uh, Morris K. Jessup's book, and he makes, and this is the famous, famous story in ufology, he makes notes in that book, makes notes in the book on what Jessup is writing. Those notes 
And that book, people say, oh, it was lost in time, gets lost on a train, misplaced, where is it? After Hoover died, his widow gave me the book and said, here's Xerox it. Hmm. There is the famous Morris K. And I'm sitting here at the Xerox, and my hands are shaking. That's the famous book in ufology, the note that the Hoover made in the Morris K. Jessup book on time travel. I have it now. She had to give the book back to the children after he died. But, talking oh, about the annotated version of the case of the UFO. Then Varro, there was a Varro edition of those notes. Yeah, well, that I've seen. That I've seen, but that was supposedly written by Carl, Carlos Allende or Carl Allen. Right. You've got these two editions of the book, and then Ivan Sanderson writes about Hoover and time travel. Hoover was, he became after this, the Navy's Phil Corso. And it was Hoover who told me Corso was the real deal, that there were other people in other branches of the service that were doing what Corso was doing very early in in this whole military business and you will find them buried literally I mean there's no UFO command but you'll find them buried in some real secret military commands where it would be expected that the work they were doing would never see the light of day i.e. nuclear biological and chemical hazmat stuff so when these guys show up to clean up a nuclear spill or a toxic chemical spill Nobody's going to, you know, you see that sign, you know, danger, you know, like um, whatever is, is, is the toxin. You're not going to walk over and say, I want to see that UFO over there. You're going to stay out. That's one. Uh, the other is nuclear, biological. The other thing was psychological warfare, because this whole thing got wrapped up in psyops. Where did Corso go after Korea? What was his first post after? Remember, it was Corso who was on the staff of Operation Little Switch, Big Switch. So when you're saying this guy's a fraud, when you're saying this guy's this, look at where this guy was. That's been my argument all along. Look at where he was for all his career in the Army. He was not some flake hanging on the wall. So he's in Little Switch, Big Switch, comes back, writes to Eisenhower about the psychological warfare that the communists were um, using against our own our own POWs and why there was this plot to bring these um, Soviet spies in deep cover they'd been programmed back into the United States. Sound paranoid? Sound crazy? Sound insane? Guess what? When the KGB files were, were, were finally given to Yale University in the 1990s, Corso was dead right. Of course, then he was dead dead, but he was dead right about that. All along, when Corso said there were truly Harvey Oswalds, people called this guy a raging right-wing nut. He's crazy. What did I say this again and again? It's like a broken record, but I'll just I'll just hammer this home. When Lady Bird Johnson released the files, released the Oval Office, the transcripts of LBJ's tapes, John Kennedy made tapes, LBJ made tapes, Richard Nixon made tapes. It's the Nixon tapes that became the Watergate tapes that were so famous, but LBJ made tapes, and in a famous conversation LBJ had with J. Edgar Hoover on the day after he got back to Washington from Texas, the day after the assassination, when he accompanied the plane back with the president's body on it, when that happened, Hoover said to Johnson, in the Oval Office, it's on tape, it was in Newsweek magazine, it was in Time magazine, go research it yourself, David, but there it was, when he said to him, you know Mr. President, there are two Lee Harvey Oswalds. 
One worked for the CIA. And Johnson says to Hoover, yes, but let's not tell Alan Dulles or anybody on the, on the commission that I'm forming. So here's a case where the nation's chief executive and the top law enforcement officer conspire to become accomplices to homicide oh. after the fact. And Corso said this all the way back in the 1970s, and it had to wait for 20-plus years for that to become public. So I'm telling you, the guy that knew this stuff is not a guy that's going to... And then you read, you read what where Corso was with Arthur Trudeau. Arthur Trudeau, he was at the center of the Army's version of MK Ultra. And when you read his memoirs and you read the story of Trudeau ordering his subordinates to drop LSD caps in the coffee at a general staff meeting and watching these army generals bump into walls because they were so disoriented. And he's saying, I didn't like it, but I had to do it to test it. And who was working for Trudeau? Corso. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to William Burns. He is the co-author of The Day After Roswell with the late Philip Corso and also the publisher of UFO Magazine. Oh. David? So, Bill, you bring up a really important name that I've always thought was the key to understanding all of the conspiracy theories that have happened in the United States in the last 60 years, J. Edgar Hoover. I've always thought that if there was one guy who would know and would hold the keys to the castle, as it were, that it would be Hoover, not just in terms of who potentially killed Kennedy, but the reality of the United States military's involvement with the UFO phenomenon. So I wonder, has UFO Magazine ever done a feature on Hoover, and has anybody ever researched Hoover's private papers to figure out what this guy knew? The FBI's UFO files are available under FOIA. Go look for them. They're really? there. Yeah, they are all there. I'll tell you, the FBI sites are really a wide open site in terms of some of this archival stuff. I mean, you can go to the FBI site, FBI.gov, and you certainly, or it's FBI.doj.gov, something like that. You can go there and certainly look up FBI, and you will see everything that's been released. You'll see the Hoover memos. There are a lot of memos. There are memos about what was that flying disc in New Mexico. He's sending agents. I've seen that one, right. Sure, okay, sure. So that's that's a, a bunch of those things. Right. The fact is, 
that I'm saying this, and they have to, here's the premise that I'm going from, okay? The premise is not that there was a crash in Roswell. I mean, don't ask me, ask Jesse Marcel Jr. on the show. His book is coming out in a few months. Sure. Roswell, get him on the show. Let him tell the story. He tells the story far better than I can ever tell it. He's been on this show, and he's already told us. Okay, so he's been there. He saw it. He's, he's actually credible. In our opinion, completely credible guy. There you go. So, so you ask. So I defer to Jesse Marcel, the last living witness, by the way. Now, but when it comes to Hoover, Hoover was out of the loop on this stuff. He was. You have to see our government for really what it is. And people who see us as this monolithic imperial government, where you got all these people kind of like marching in lockstep, kind of like a, a, a beehive. That's wrong. It's not true. Our government is this compartment mentalized confederation of all these bureaus at the center of which is this massive hunt for intelligence. Hoover was an intelligence freak. He knew that the only way he could amass power for his own bureaucracy was to get as much intelligence on other people as he possibly could. Sure, Hoover, knew that, Hoover knew that LBJ was as dirty as dirty they come. Okay, He knew it. So there's no... We're not debating about, oh, what are the, he knew it. He knew that John F. Kennedy had Addison's disease. He knew that John F. Kennedy was under a death sentence because of Addison's disease. He knew that John F. Kennedy was taking injections from this guy, Max Jacobson, Dr. Feelgood, of mm -hmm. straight-out liquid meth. He was on amphetamines. He was on speed and steroids. It was the only the guy could... Kennedy was a cripple. He couldn't, yeah, he couldn't walk. walk otherwise. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, what, so what I'm trying to say is Hoover knows all this stuff, right? He knows well, but that's that, the that, thing. Hoover's got the goods on everybody, pretty much. Right. Presidents are afraid of goods, him. Except he doesn't have the goods on the army, and he's scared to death of the CIA because they're fighting a war. The CIA and, and the FBI, Hoover had his own death squad. I knew two people who were on that death squad. He had his own hit squad. They were made of ex-cops, uh, ex-guys from the organized crime families in New York. Hoover was friends with Meyer Lansky, owned a race track down in Florida with Frank Costello. How do you think organized crime flourished as long as it did in the 1930s? Untouched, yeah. right? The only thing that yeah. drove Homer crazy, what drove him crazy? Sex. Hated sex. You, know, you violate sex, I'm going to come in. He didn't care about the murders, he cared about sex. So how did he bust Lucky Luciano? On a rape charge. A rape charge. Nobody cared. <laughs> uh, uh, nobody cared about the fact that Luciano was a killer. He raped the guy. He's in jail for life. Raped. Raped. Prostitution. There you go. And then what happened? We were inside of a war. Hoover, you ready for this? This is on tape, gentlemen. Go get the book, Dave, because you want to research this. Go get the book. Go get the book. Operation Underworld by William, I'm trying to think of the guy's last name, Herlands. William H-E-R-L-A-N-D-S, the state investigator for New York State, William Herlands. His daughter was my dissertation advisor at NYU. Anyway, so Herlands writes the book from the wire recordings that are made in prison. Hoover gets Costello to get the head of
Federal Longshoremen's Union, Joe Sox Lanza, to negotiate on getting the Italian Longshoremen's Union to police the waterfront because they knew that Mussolini had agents on the movement of U.S. ships, and the Nazis were sitting off the coast, off the continental shelf of the East Coast, torpedoing our ships. So who helped win the war in the early days in 1942? It was the organized crime families in New York. And the guy that told me all about this was in the OSS. He was a counter-spy in the Navy, ferreting out the Nazis and, and uh, right. some of the... Uh, okay, Listen, now, I, he tells I gotta, me the I, story. No, 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 no. I, I just have a scene from The Rocketeer, a movie I worked on in my mind, and I, our listeners are going... What in God's name does this have to do with the paranormal? I'm going to tell you. Here's what it has to do. This right. guy who was on this Hoover hit squad, I'm, I'm just talking about Hoover, but the guy who was on the Hoover hit squad told me all the way back in 1985 that Hoover sent him to Dallas in the days after the assassination to get rid of witnesses, which he did. This guy came back to Washington, and Hoover says to him, LBJ, no way, we walk away. And that was the end of LBJ's involvement. And 15 years later, I find out from Corso there were two Lee Harvey Oswalds. And a couple of years after that, in Newsweek is the conversation between LBJ and J. Edgar Hoover. So Corso was right. This guy on Hoover's squad was right. And here is Corso telling me this after he is just spammed all over the place in the 1970s as some right-wing fanatic. So all I'm trying to say is every time somebody came up to dismiss Corso as a liar, a charlatan, a flake, a right-wing kook, a nutcase, a confabulator, every single time Corso after it was all over is still standing and the arguments have fallen away. Now in, this, in the case of Kevin Randall, that's what happened. He walks out of Corso's press conference and is hostile ever since. Stan Friedman. Corso comes out of nowhere. Nobody knows this guy. He comes out of left field. He is, but of course he's got a long, long history, but nobody knows it. Comes out of left field, makes all these fantastic claims. Nobody goes to read Trudeau's, uh, Trudeau's memoirs, which anybody can get, which says essentially the same thing Corso is saying, and much, much more when you talk about all this MK Ultra stuff. So Stan's big deal with Corso is that Corso lied, okay, that, and he's right. Corso, he's got him on paper as a liar. What does Stanton say? Stanton says that Corso said he was a member of the National Security Council. He committed perjury on uh, an affidavit. Now, let's, let's get into that affidavit and Corso's committing perjury. At the time Corso was handed the affidavit, on the one hand, the affidavit, it was Peter Gersten's affidavit because he was filing a suit against uh -oh, the federal government. Now we got oh, Peter Gersten. Oh, jeez. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to William Burns, and we're playing a game called Opening a Can of Worms, which is a little bit crazier than, of course, oh. opening sardines and tuna fish. Why okay, did you so have to say the name Peter Gersten? Oh, my So Peter Gersten presents Corsa with an affidavit. In the affidavit, I've got a copy of it. You can get a copy of it. It's all over the place. It says, I was a member of the National Security Council. Well, he was wasn't a member of the National Security Council. He was on the National Security staff. He was a military liaison to Eisenhower at the White House, a staffer. The council would... Corso in 19... Late 97, early 98, he is dying, okay? He's hemorrhaging. His heart is failing. He's on pain meds. There's a whole bunch of stuff that he's dealing with. He's involved in this lawsuit with the motion picture company that had acquired his rights to the book because there was a dispute. I'm I'm just going to get as detailed as detailed as possible. you got to stop me. There was a dispute. This is kind of Hollywood lawsuit time, right? There was a dispute between this motion picture company and Corso. So it was more, of course, those dispute with them over what was the extent of the life story rights they had purchased when the day after Roswell book was published by Simon and Schuster. What was the extent of those rights? Did they have the sequel rights to Corso's life after he left the army, or do they only have the sequel yeah, rights? Okay, we're getting too granular here. This is, I think, too granular for our audience. Except for, I appreciate except for, the except for one right. thing. Except for one thing. Right. It's the little granular stuff, David. That is the stuff that winds up with where we are today. So let's make let's make a very short story of that. There was a dispute. Corso was so mad that. At this company, and I was there, I was at the center of this stuff, we sold the rights to that next, Corso's next book called The Day After Dallas to Simon & Schuster as a sequel book. The day after Roswell had spent the entire summer of 1997 on the New York Times bestseller list, we were flying high. This was big. People were calling. We want to put X millions of down for the movie, blank, blank, blank. What happened was Corso got so mad that he sued the motion picture company. Now, in Corso's life, one of the things he did was once he got into a fight with somebody, he went on a tear. And he basically didn't care. Now, he's dying now, and he he probably knows he's dying. Um, I saw him that spring in April at depositions for this lawsuit I was testifying. And the suit, by the way, went nowhere. It was dismissed in federal court. But the point on on jurisdictional issues. But the point is that uh, what then happened was there's this fight. Corso is looking to sell his rights. He's looking to go public. He's looking to establish himself outside of the movie company. So he agrees to sign this affidavit. I don't even think he read the affidavit that Peter Gersten gave him. His eyes were failing. He was very sick. He never got a chance to present the affidavit. Never got a chance for that to be filed in court because he died in uh, late June, early July 1998. But it was on the basis of that affidavit that Oh, he lied, he committed perjury. Well, the fact is, he was, in, and I will say this, he was incompetent to sign that affidavit. Mm-hmm. He was in pain, he was physically incompetent. I believe that his powers to understand what he was signing were vastly diminished. So 
If your capacity to sign a legal document, they get legal. If your capacity to sign a legal document is so impaired that you don't have that capacity anymore, then legally you cannot commit perjury. Now, mm. so the argument is over Corso's committing perjury. Stan says he did. I say he didn't because he lacked the capacity to understand what he was signing. Period. End of story. That's my fight. David, okay. maybe you should explain why when the name Peter Gersten was brought up, your eyes oh. rolled in, uh, let's just say, rolled verbally as opposed to physically, or maybe both. As a new contributing columnist to UFO Magazine, I read the magazine cover to cover, every issue. The most recent issue has an interview of a friend of the show's who did an interview with Peter Gersten, and I read the interview, and, and it seemed a little odd to me. And when I read an interview that seems a little odd, I think, let's get this guy on the show and see what he's really about. So I sent him an email uh, about us wanting to have him on the show, very friendly email, and mm -hmm. apparently, I guess Gene also has a bit of a history with him, knows him. A pleasant a history. We've had lunches on several yeah. occasions, and we yeah. got along famously, so I don't right. know. So uh, I sent him an invite to the show, and he looks on our guest roster, Bill, and he sees that we've had on a fellow by the name of Royce Myers, the third friend of the mm -hmm. show, a fellow who maintains a website called UFO Watchdog, and uh, on UFO Watchdog's Hall of Shame, Peter Gersten is prominently featured, and I didn't even realize this. So Gersten sees Royce's mention on our website and writes back to us saying, you've had Royce on the show, I won't come on your show. Basically, go to hell. Which I thought, gee, that's awfully mature and reasonable for a guy who's supposedly uh, a lawyer. So uh, I was pretty unhappy about this, and uh, it, it just brings us to the topic of the crazy infighting and the weird egos and personalities of the UFO field and the paranormal field. That's true. Well, I mean, but, but that's, again, the mm -hmm. core of some of the questions we're talking about with respect to Corso. That's this whole level of infighting, that yeah. you've got people whose egos are bruised. I mean, more than anyone, I mean, I, I could basically characterize myself as a victim of victims, okay? On the one hand, I had Corso mad at me, I had the motion picture company mad at me, I had the lawyer mad at me, I had people in the UFO community mad at me, and then Corso was saying, well, sure, there are mistakes, there were Burns' mistakes. So suddenly, you know, you can't please anybody. And here's a book, but you have to realize, here's a book that in, and again, I'm going to speak professionally as a professional writer. I'm, I'm not going to mince words. I mean, I know what it takes to get on the bestseller list, okay? I mean, it's not the hardest thing in the world to do. It's not a function of, you don't have to sell a million books to get on the bestseller list. You can get on it by selling 30,000 books. You could do it. But you've got to sell them, and we've done that, but you've got to sell them in, in a specific period of time in, in certain accounts, okay? We did, right? And we did in large measure because of Art Bell, because of uh, the Dateline piece that was a great piece that um, John, whatever his face, did, and it was great. Now, People were furious. Why? Because the UFO community, and even though we've had our issues, Steve Bassett characterizes it best when he says the UFO community, and talk about getting Steve Bassett to write a book. It's like pulling teeth. Steve Bassett says the UFO community is a niche ghetto community, and once you've got the UFO taint on you, you're in the ghetto, right? Yeah. I agree oh, with yeah. that. It's absolutely true. Mm. I felt it. So, I mean, but inside the ghetto, you've got all this 
fighting. I mean, you've got the X's fighting with Y. I think you can mention all the names of all the fighting. Oh, who's going to be at the conferences? Who's going to sell the most? Who's going to have the greatest longevity? Who steals from other people? There's a lot of a pilfering that goes on in the UFO community, literally. Somebody comes up with a story, and you see that story on somebody's website, and uh, you've got to pay it on the website, and the person says, wait a minute, I put the story up, and, and, and you took it, and I'm not going to name names in this, but I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff you see over and over Oh, yeah, over we've had our own battles in the last year, Bill. I mean, just we've just been on this on this scene for a year, and already so, we've, we, we've been in a few battles. Right, suddenly this guy, Corso, with a history, a long history of, um, and it's a pretty reputable history, a pretty stellar history in World War II, Korea and everything else, suddenly comes in like the cavalry and he's an list. but the book and here's the astounding thing and this is what really got people mad first of all, a lot of people criticize the book that never read it, I'll, I'll go on record as saying that I exec produced the History Channel piece uh, with Hearst on the day after Roswell that was on a couple years ago For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Bill Burns of UFO Magazine and the co-author of The Day After Roswell. I guess we could call this the never-ending fallout about The Day After Roswell because it just keeps going on and on. Or you could, or you could call this The Day After Corso, but the point is that... I, I, the decade I, after Corso, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I exec produced the show, and the History Channel people brought these, like, quote-unquote scientists in, right? Now, this goes to the heart of what we're saying. So this cadre of scientists comes in, none of whom read the book, and proudly said they didn't read the book, and proudly condemned the book. And I would say to you, nobody is more close-minded than a scientist. I've made my opinion, and don't confuse me with your facts. And I was really incensed by the fact that you've got these people talking about how things are done and not even bothering to read the book, which in part confirms what they're saying, but I mean, and they're making this 
incredible misstatements. Well, this man knows nothing about Roswell. How could he write about Roswell when he wasn't even there? And of course, what's in one of the first paragraphs of the chapter? I wasn't at Roswell, and what I say about Roswell comes from other sources, and I identify the sources. I mean, that's exactly what we're saying in the beginning mm -hmm. of the book. So sure. that's, first of all, nobody's saying I was there and Kevin is wrong. I was there and so-and-so is wrong. It's literally, I'm getting the second hand, I'm getting this third hand where I come into the picture was after Roswell. And of course, that's the kind of stuff he's talking about. And he's talking about it inside Army R&D. And of course, nobody goes, and I keep on harping on this Trudeau memoir business, because if you read Trudeau's memoirs, what Corso was saying is basically repeated, or actually, I think uh, maybe they said it at the same time, it's in the memoirs themselves. And Trudeau has this long, also secret, um, strange history of working in exotic weapons, working with Project Harp, believe it or not, turns up in those memoirs. Nobody bothers to go to the source, right? You could research some of the things that Corso did, like night vision goggles, okay? Oh, the, he could, didn't do what they had it. If you read the Fort Belvoir report, it's called Opening Up the Night or something like that, Conquest of the Night. I forget they gave it some romantic name, right? In that report, it says that the whole night vision program was going nowhere, gunished. Nothing was happening with it. It was, it was floating along like a reef on a stream until General Trudeau's Army R&D program came across with a whopping budget to develop night vision goggles. Gentlemen, they went from the Panzer Division generators and the British tank power packs that were like, it, it was like a small building you had to have to generate that, to goggles for troops in Vietnam in two years. Corso's point is not that he invented night vision goggles. Corso's point is not that, that, oh, that of course, nobody was doing it until he showed him the way. He says, I went to Fort Belvoir where there was research underway, and I had a budget from my boss, General Trudeau, of $60 million to take. And he says, what we gave to Fort Belvoir, which you'll never see them admit to because it, this was a cover-up. This was not to was the inner lens from the alien eyelid that was a light-collecting lens. No way they could have developed night vision, portable night vision goggles for our troops in Vietnam in two years unless they saw something from another source. And it wasn't the British and it wasn't the Germans. And that's exactly, in fact, what, it, what appears in the Fort Belvoir report, absent, of course, the fact that it came from the inner lens of an alien. Now, if you want to argue that because they're not saying it came from an alien, Corso's a liar, go ahead and do it. But the fact is, who, who in the world is going to say this came from an alien? This came from outer space? No, I mean, sure. They're sure. not going to say that. Everything else circumstantially is there. Who developed it? What they developed? And their own report credits Arthur Trudeau. Well, I'm not an expert on night vision technology, Bill, but I do know something about transistors, okay? And this is one area that I find is very problematic with Corso's claims because it's... Now, what are his not... claims? David, what are 
his claims. Yeah. What are, of course, those claims about the transistor? So, well, why don't you fill in what his claims no, are? No, because... I, no. I, the oh. reason that I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm homing is this is exactly my point. What were Corso's claims? Did Corso make specific first-hand claims about the transistor? Well, if we're looking at the timeline, Bill, and certainly I'm not going to say that Corso ever claimed he invented the transistor, but if we look at the timeline, in 1947, December 47, we have at Bell Labs the implementation of the first point-contact transistor. This was in 1947, and this was based on research that had happened in Germany in the late 1920s. So I'm not talking about who invented these things. I'm talking no, no, about no, a timeline. Are you exactly... Thank you for saying that. You said exactly what I wanted you to say, okay. that the transistor came into being in the United States. And here's where mm -hmm. I am going to drill down, okay? The transistor came into being in the United States in December of, of 1947, okay? That's and they had the first patent for the transistors when? In 1948. And the first working patent for the transistor, putting this thing into commerce in 1949. And in the 1950s, uh, if you were my age, we were all walking around with these little transistor the radios. radios listening yeah. to the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field, okay? Yeah. So yeah. now we know where we're on the timeline. The reason I asked you is this. What did Corso say about the transistor. He never said that Army R&D in 1961 had anything to do with the transistor. Here is what he said in the book. And I know this because like you, David, I was aware of that timeline and I hammered him on it. Mm -hmm. And he said this, Bill, I had nothing to do with the damn transistor. Here's what happened. In 1947, after the crash, one of the things Truman said to his Army Chief of Staff was find out what in the world happened, get that technology, and take that technology anywhere you have to. In other words, 13 years before Corso came to Army R&D, Truman mm -hmm. is saying, basically, reverse engineer what you can, take this anywhere you have to take it, and let's come up with the... You ready for this? The lowest common denominator of what we can develop from that technology. So the Army knew that Western Electric and Bell Laboratories was working on a way to improve what everybody had been using up to 1947, which was essentially what? The Edison's light bulb. The incandescent light bulb was basically the radio tube, right? A filament running through a vacuum, passing current. Bill, I have to tell you we're down to about a minute and a half. So. Okay, fine. So Bretain <laughs> and Shockley, for, through the 1930s, were working on this. Suddenly, in the fall, in the winter of 1947, they come up with this. In the 1950s, David, they reversed engineered their own notes. What happened was the Army brought the, the, the circuitry to Bretain and Shockley at Bell Labs, knowing they were working on something, and that taught them two things. One, that they had to dope the silicon base with arsenic to control the electric flow and to control the electron flow in a specific direction. They didn't even know how they do it because they had the device from the crash at Roswell. Corso had nothing to do with it, and that's what he says in the day after uh, Roswell. He never made the claim. Hey, what a thank. 
<laughs> we can't <laughs> finish this yet. We're yes. not done. Yes, we are done. We can't finish it. We have to thank we're William not gonna, We're not going to thank him. We're going to keep going. We're going to do a 10-hour show. That's a good idea because we need to have basically sit down with William right. Burns we, for a 10-hour show. Thank you very much. You. William Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine, co-author of The Day After Roswell and lots of other stuff. Thanks for joining us on the PowerCast. Thanks, guys. I really, I always enjoy our spirited conversations on, on the radio show. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. All in good fun. Welcome back to the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Well, you've all heard, I presume, about that sighting at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Well, it's being investigated by a number of people, including our next guest, Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. There's been a lot of discussion in the media, which is a pretty rare thing, about the UFO incident that occurred in early November at uh, O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Can you tell us what you've discovered about this incident? Who have you spoken to? And what do we know so far about the facts regarding this incident? Well, it's a very interesting case, in my opinion, principally because of the number of witnesses who allegedly saw this object that was hovering over O'Hare Airport. On, it was the 7th of November. 2006, Election Day, of course. It is of interest principally because not only of the number of witnesses who saw it, but because of the qualifications of the individuals who saw it. These Many of the people who saw it are very responsible people, responsible enough, for example, to be allowed to handle airliners and fly them and be around them and so on and so forth. And moreover, some of the witnesses are extremely qualified in the sense that they've been in the aviation or airline industry for a good long time, uh, measured in decades. But on that Tuesday afternoon at about 16.30 hours, 4.30 in the afternoon, before the sun was down, the ramp worker was standing at the nose of an aircraft that he was pushing back. It was departing for Charlotte, North Carolina. He just happened to look up, and I believe he was the first party to see this object. What he saw was a seemingly round object almost directly above him, apparently hovering below solid overcast. It appeared to be turning. Some people report that it appeared to have a haze around it, and that was the beginning of the sighting in which many people actually walked to get to a position where they could see this object. Now, that was the beginning of it. The aftermath been extensive, as you correctly point out, the coverage we're delighted by. It uh, shows many, many people what many of us ufologists already know. Namely, if you cover a UFO, a bona fide UFO sighting in a serious manner, it will gain a great deal of attention for your readership. In other words, people who work in the media should, in my opinion, pay attention to this because it is an example of how interested people really are in the UFO phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But that is a thumbnail sketch of what happened. Uh, You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to present Peter Davenport. He's director of the National UFO Reporting Center, and the link to that is at the Paracast.com website. David? 
Peter, in the media reports of this incident, I saw a couple of the news reports, and in typical fashion, there was the wink-wink and kind of an attitude, oh, you know, I heard the mentions of little green men. Why is it that we continue to get this uh, bias in the media, even with a relatively credible report like this one? I don't really know the answer to that question, but I agree with your statement. Almost invariably, when a news agency covers a UFC, seemingly UFO-related event, they always have to incorporate some kind of laugh factor to leave the door open for escape, if you will. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's the reason they do it. So at a later date, if it's proven that it was, in fact, not a genuine UFO, they can say to themselves or to their viewers or readership, oh, you see, after all, we were treating it in a lighthearted fashion. This was not a solid newscast. Well, um, really, what you should do is pose that question to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I've just outlined here is conjecture on my part. I have worked in uh, the newspaper industry in the past. Many of those people I do not understand. They seem to think differently from the way I think, but I am a scientist. I am interested only in what the facts tell me, and they're in a different business. So I I really think that what we should do in order to get to the bottom of that and get an answer is go to them, invite them on a program, and ask them why they do that. I frankly do not understand it, but being director of the National UFO Reporting Center, as I've been for 12 and a half years now, of course, I look at the world from a fairly unique vantage point. So maybe I simply cannot see the world from their vantage point. Let's talk about specifics of the sighting, Peter. Um, I understand you've spoken to witnesses from United Airlines who saw this. Where do their reports coincide in terms of details, and where do they uh, diverge? Well, the uh, reports seem to be very consistent, and uh, I should clarify, uh, there were many, many witnesses on O'Hare Airport, we believe, and uh, I have appeared on radio programs with one of the witnesses that identified himself as being an an employee of the airline. I'm not sure I've ever uh, really identified who all of the witnesses are with whom I have spoken. There apparently were witnesses from airlines, there were witnesses from government agencies, both the FAA and possibly the TSA, Transportation Security Administration. But uh, that's one of the other interesting factors about this case. You ask about the consistency of reports, and that is the intriguing thing. People reported exactly the same thing, and uh, the only difference is depended on their vantage point to the object. Some people, the gentleman whom I alluded to earlier in this program, who was standing directly beneath it, saw a what he thought was a perfectly round object directly above him. I think the pilot and first officer of the aircraft, who apparently also were able to see the object, reported the same thing. The people who are off at a distance from it, who are looking at it, looking up at it at a slant angle, saw an oval-shaped object or a thin object, which is fully consistent with the fact that they were looking at it from a different vantage point. And 
and all of this information appears to coincide, seems to be consistent with a solid object that was indeed metallic in appearance, according to all witnesses. Some people reported that it appeared to be spinning, but in mm -hmm. order for them to be able to determine that, it would have had to have features on it that would have allowed their vision to pick up on the fact that it was turning. I can't confirm that quite yet. That is what makes this case so intriguing, is the consistency of reports in addition to the qualification of the witnesses and their reliability as employees of either a, an airline or a government agency. Yeah, I was wondering in reading the preliminary reports of the O'Hare incident, what about photographs? Cell phone yep. photographs? Something? Do you know of anything? Yep. Photographs. Uh, we believe that at least two photographs were taken. Believe me, I have tried since early on for over two months to get those individuals to come forward and release their photographs if, in fact, they still have them in their possession. Now, it is clear that the U.S. government, through the Federal Aviation Administration, was trying to quash the story. That is made evident by the interview, the first query that was made by John Hilkovich, the transportation reporter for the Chicago Tribune, who approached the FAA, approached United Airlines, and their immediate reaction to his interview or his query was, no, no, we don't know what you're talking about. It never happened. Later on, when he showed them evidence, evidence that I had helped get to him, they said, well, maybe it did occur after all, but we think it was a weather aberration or something not, uh, of little interest to us. That's pretty much a summary of what happened. The government probably, I'm surmising here, but if I worked for the federal government and my responsibility was to see to it that this story got quashed, I think I would go to those individuals who were seen to take photographs, allegedly, and see to it that I got those photographs in my possession and furthermore saw to it that they were not released publicly. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to offer Peter Davenport. He's director of the National UFO Reporting Center. And we're starting our discussion today with regard to the sighting at O'Hare. So let's continue that. David, you had a question? Peter, the one major discrepancy I saw in some of the reports, uh, reportedly from witnesses online, um, was that there were some strange anomalies in terms of the size of the craft. The range of sizes I saw quoted were from 6 feet to 25 feet. Why would we be hearing that range of size differentials? Are we talking about different points of view? If people were further away, the thing would have looked smaller to them than someone who was standing underneath? The figures I remember are from 6 feet to 24 feet. The uh, problem is that when you're making an estimate of the actual size of an object, you have to put very broad error bars on the data to make sure that the actual size falls somewhere within those barriers or with those, within those bounds. The variability is due to the fact that you have to, in order to determine the exact size or an accurate size, you have to know how far away from the witness it was. All we have is reports of the object's apparent size, and of course even that is an estimate. The best thing to do is hold up your thumb at arm's length and close mm-hmm. one eye so you can establish what the apparent size of the object was relative to the apparent size of your thumb. And that's what we have at this point is only those estimates of apparent size. Right. The calculations have been made to try to determine its altitude, but again, we're working with estimates, not exact measurements. So you have to be very careful to make sure that your estimate encompasses the exact size of the object. Right. Now, since 9-11, Peter, it would seem that security measures across the United States, especially at airports, have been significantly beefed up. O'Hare is a major hub for a lot of the airlines. So presumably there is a significant amount of security on site at the airport, which would lead us to believe that uh, there would be a good amount of video surveillance gear set up to to monitor both the uh, the tarmac and also, I would imagine, the sky to to guard against things like the potential of shoulder-fired missiles at airplanes is it uh, likely to presume or is it unreasonable to presume that uh, the government might indeed have some footage of airspace at this time, including potentially footage of this craft? Well, you're asking me to conjecture on the basis of a surmise. I hesitate to do that. Are there cameras at O'Hare? I presume there are. People are exploring that possibility already, but those cameras presumably would be much more interested in what's going on on the ground. So would they be pointed up in the air? I don't Mm. know. I just Mm -hmm. don't know the answer to the question. What you might do is contact the FAA or contact administrative personnel for O'Hare Airport.
Network, bring them on the air and ask them that question. They're the ones who would know the answer to it, I suspect. I'm going to guess they're going to decline an invitation. Call me a cynic, but... <laughs> so anything I could say about the question or in response to the perfectly reasonable question would be surmise. I just don't know any more than any of our listeners presumably know about that subject. Fast question here as we progress. When did you first hear about the O'Hare case? A reasonable question, and if you would allow me, I would like to blur the exact timing of when it occurred. I'm in a position, I have information in my possession, which I presume were it to be released publicly, could be used as a pretext for dismissing people from their jobs, for having released internal information to an unauthorized recipient. So let me just say I was aware of the incident in very short order, certainly on the date that the incident occurred, but how quickly after the incident, uh, I would prefer not to say, could have been while people were on duty, could have been shortly thereafter, or later in the evening. But again, I'd uh, like to decline answering in detail on that one. Peter, to your knowledge, and you're definitely the person who would know this, in the last few years, do we have any other incidents that involve highly qualified witnesses, multiple witnesses, viewing a structured object in daylight that perhaps would not have made the mainstream media? Absolutely. I've been putting them on my website for 12 and a half years, trying to alert people to these very, very interesting cases. And frankly, I am flabbergasted. I am flummoxed that the press is not paying attention to what appears to be going on. I don't know what I can do other than release information which I hope is accurate and in some cases well corroborated by other witnesses, but there are so many cases like that over the last 12 and a half years, I don't even know where to begin. Really? Phoenix Lights case, uh, it was not a daylight sighting, but uh, certainly a very good sighting in which people saw actual features on craft. Mrs. Susan Watson from Phoenix, Arizona, case in point. I've had her on many, many radio programs, and she's a wonderful witness together with her four children, two of whom lay down on their backs on their front yard to stare up at this object above their home for an estimated five minutes. But there have been many other cases which I have brought to the attention of readers of our visitors to our website. Also, I've brought many of those witnesses to radio program, perhaps hundreds or thousands of radio programs. By now. So on the uh, New Fork website, there's a specific link uh, to the director's picks, the most noteworthy cases. Would that be a good place for people looking to review the database at your site to, to start with? That would be a good place to start. Those are some of the cases that I consider to be the most interesting when that document was prepared at any rate. And what people can do is look at a one or two line description of each of those relatively dramatic cases and then go to that particular date in our database to look at other reports that have come in from other witnesses. That, in my opinion, is sort of a distillation of some of the most interesting cases that we've covered over the last 12 years. You know, what's interesting, I'm looking at your site now, and I'm interested in the report index by month. And I noticed in the last few years, you have a lot more reports of UFOs than you did, say, in the early 90s. And that seems to to put the lie to the claim that maybe the UFOs have left? Well, it's hard to say. The number of reports may not be a function of the number of UFOs in our atmosphere.
atmosphere or near Earth environment. Whether we receive reports or not, for example, could be the result of a radio program or a television program or a movie that has been released and people suddenly start thinking about UFOs and so on and so forth, so they decide uh, to submit their report. But that is by no means an indication that the number of uh, UFOs has increased or decreased. Frankly, I sit here on this body of data that I've collected over the last 12 years or, or so, and I am just flabbergasted. I sit here in stunned disbelief at the statement that the statements that people are want to make with regard to the UFO phenomenon. For example, they claim there are hot spots, uh, that UFOs uh, gravitate to a certain location on the planet, the way iron filings gravitate to a magnet. Unfortunately, the data don't say that, or the data are not sufficient for us to arrive at that conclusion. But people believe this widely. Even UFO investigators believe there are hot spots. It's just that the data don't seem to show that clearly enough to make that conclusion. There are many, many, many statements that people make about UFOs and about the UFO phenomenon that, from my vantage point, are just dead wrong. In fact, my suspicion is that if it could be measured, which would be very difficult, I believe that probably somewhere between 90 and 98 percent of everything the American public hears about UFOs is simply dead wrong or does not have sufficient corroboration for the person to have made the statement. So this is one of the things I combat routinely. One of the reasons I'm pleased to be able to speak to listeners directly is to bring these observations to their attention so they will be hopefully a little more cautious about the information they hear about UFOs which they accept as being the gospel. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Peter Davenport. He's the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. And by the way, we'll have a link to their site over at theparacast.com so you can check it out and check for yourself the kind of information he has. So maybe for a few moments here we can do a little myth busting. So well, what do you before, think? Before yeah. we do that, Gina, I do want to mention one thing about the, uh, the database on, sure. um, on Peter's website uh, in that it, it, it's pretty clear to me by looking at this that one could draw correlation between the number of reported incidents and the uh, the advent of the internet and the rise of the internet. I'm going to guess that the reason, one of the primary reasons we're seeing so many more entries into the database, uh, starting at around uh, the mid-90s, was that at that point, and Peter, I'm not sure when you implemented the online reporting form, yep. but I'm going to guess that this has made it a lot easier for people to report incidents, and because of that, you're getting a lot more reports. It's easier for yep. people to find out about you 
you and to submit information versus doing things like calling it in or writing in. This is much more immediate, and I'm guessing yep. that has skewed the number up. Yeah, uh, the Internet has been a boon to ufology because not only – you're exactly correct, I believe. The Internet makes it much, much easier for people to submit reports for a host of reasons. One, it's convenient. Number mm-hmm. two, it allows them to submit a report without any expense to themselves. Right. Uh, third, third possibility is uh, it allows them to submit it uh, anonymously, although since we don't release any personal information about the people who contact our center, that's really a moot point. But yes, uh, all of those reports that you see on our website have been submitted over the Internet. So uh, we invite people, irrespective of whether their sighting was last night or 40 years ago, to submit their reports of their UFO sightings just with a paragraph or two or three describing what it was they saw such that another person reading their report could understand fairly clearly what happened, what the object looked like, what it did, and so on and so forth. So in you looking at this data, you, you've come to the conclusion that there are not areas where UFO activity seems more predominant than others at any given time? Well, I don't see that from my data. Maybe somebody else has clearer data on that point, but I think uh, the concept of quote-quote UFO hotspots may be the result of some of those UFO movies that came to us out of the 1950s where people would go out into the desert to see UFOs, and to this day, there's there seems to be among some people this notion that in order to see a UFO, you've got to get out of the cities and go out into the desert where UFOs are known to lurk, etc., etc. Unfortunately, none of that is true. In fact, if people would like to see an example which I think supports my statement, go to the data for Friday the 17th of November 1995 when an object streaked down the coast of Maine across Boston, across New England, and it was joined by five other objects near Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Those areas over which these objects flew clearly are not rural areas. I think it is correct to say, and this is an estimate or a a surmise on my part, a person is as likely to see a UFO while he stands on the top of the Empire State Building in New York City as he would be to be standing where he's standing out in the middle of a desert near Roswell, New Mexico. UFOs don't seem to care where they go or where they are visible. Mm -hmm. This is also uh, made evident by the event that occurred on the 25th of August, 1995. Over all of Ontario, the object slashed down across Pennsylvania, and it was seen by many, many people. Again, by no means rural areas. UFOs show up in almost any part of our planet, it seems. Sure. I would think that one of the most stunning examples of that would be the very well-documented and fairly well-known UFO flap of the entire decade of the 1990s over Mexico City. Mexico, this is one of the most populous cities in the world. It's a vast, sprawling city, and um, there is a tremendous amount of video evidence and photographic evidence that's come out of Mexico from the entire decade of the 90s that would indicate that uh, there is a huge amount of, of, of activity over what is... A, again, a a vast populated city. Some of those videos are intriguing, I admit, but I'm unconvinced by a lot of the data that has come out of Mexico. I would like to see more thorough corroboration of some of those videos of alleged UFO events. I've seen many of them, and again, some of them are intriguing, but without documentation,
documentation or corroboration, they're really not terribly useful. Well, even even worse, some of that footage, there's one particular piece of footage that's gained a lot of notoriety, even on other uh, paranormal shows, um, of a ship that looks like it's going behind a building. And uh, this has been thrown around by a number of people on a number of shows as genuine footage. Our uh, close friend, Jeff Ritzman, who, like myself, is someone who is very interested in image processing, Jeff uh, took a close look at this footage and clearly determined that this was a computer graphic generated ship that was motion matched and camera matched into live footage of this building and uh, that it's fake, that it's not real. And I think there's a good amount of footage that you could come to the same conclusion about. But regardless of that, uh, when you have such a huge amount of um, encounters over, again, a very populated city, certainly Mexico City is by, by no measure rural or remote. And I want to contrast that to some research I've been doing recently into an area of Venezuela. Um, the southeastern part of Venezuela is um, there is a 30,000 square kilometer national park called Canaima National Park um, where the Angel Falls are. And this is a, a very remote area, in fact, of the, the country of Venezuela where there's been a tremendous amount of UFO and anomalous light activity reported over 25 years or so. So it does look like, I mean, you can find UFO activity anywhere in the world, but there do appear to be places where there is more of a predominance for, for any number of reasons. And I think it's useful to ask questions about that. I, I don't know that we have enough data at this point to draw hard conclusions, but certainly all of these things should probably be considered pieces of a puzzle, the puzzle we're trying to decipher. Yeah, I agree. They should be considered. But if these statements uh, with regard, for example, we're discussing hotspots here, whether they exist or not. Mm -hmm. If they do, then people should be able to go there with a camera and capture the objects on film somehow. Uh, That is the type of evidence that I'm interested in to see whether people are in fact seeing these things or whether it's simply some kind of allegation. Well, of course, and the problem in all of this is that we're at a point in time technologically in history where even the notion of a photograph or video as completely viable evidence by itself is not really tenable. At this point, we need witness testimony. We need other forms of documentation, anything like in the case of the O'Hare incident, I'm dying to see the radar records of the control tower. If this was a structured metallic object, it's it's likely to, to reason that it would have shown up on radar. You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete 
whatever they wanted to say about it. And then the company's position changed dramatically, probably as early as the 8th of November. So given the frustration I'm sure the employees have felt about this, there's been a good amount of reporting online from people who claim to be witnesses to this who are starting to come forward in a covert fashion online. Uh, someone pointed out to me that on the very popular web forum called Above Top Secret, that there have been a couple of people who have claimed to have been witnesses to this episode and uh, who claim specific aspects of the sighting that uh, we haven't read about in the press. And I'm wondering if I was a United employee and if I wanted to get some information out about this and if I felt that my job was jeopardized, wouldn't it make sense to me to turn to a community of people who actively track this kind of uh, stuff, these kinds of phenomenon, and to divulge details on there? Because some on Above Top Secret, some very fascinating details have been revealed that you and I have spoken before the show, and I asked you about some of the stuff, and you felt uh, very strongly that these people were not credible. Specifically, well, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm wondering about that, because if indeed these people are being threatened, wouldn't it make sense that they would turn to a sort of a more covert outlet to, to get this information out? Again, you're asking me to conjecture on an anonymous account. It's very difficult to do that. I have read some of what you allude to on Above Top Secret, and it mm -hmm. may or may not be true. My response to the person who has released this information is to encourage him to go to a UFO organization like ours or like NARCAP or like MUFON, which guarantee anonymity, and make a statement and talk to investigators. I observe from the text you allude to that the person has done little more, as far as I can determine, than parrot the same information that has already been released by our organization by, and by other investigators or reporters. So I think at this stage, those assertions are undocumented and uncorroborated. I would like to see the person come forward and talk to an investigator so we could somehow confirm that his assertions are correct. Now, you've had one person come forward and contact you. Have you been able to verify the identity of that person? Oh, you say one. We've had two or more witnesses with whom we've had dozens of communications. Well, I say one publicly uh, that we know about. Yeah. I can only I can only comment on what, what we know publicly, Peter. I mean, I'm not yeah. I'm not a mind well, reader. <laughs> the, the other witness, of course, uh, there have been several witnesses with whom reporters have spoken and UFO investigators have spoken. And yes, we know their identity quite well. But okay. of course, uh, again, because of the issue of anonymity, we haven't revealed who they are. We think one of them, one of the more daring witnesses who has come forward to report what he saw has now been identified. He's been contacted by uh, late night television programs, et cetera, et cetera, requesting an appearance. So his identity is pretty well known now. And I commend him for his sense of daring, but we have talked with two or more witnesses, and forgive me, I'd like to blur just how many, how many okay. witnesses we've talked to, because uh, we don't want to alert their employers to who they might be, and if the employers had a number of witnesses, it, it would assist them in trying to identify these people. Hmm. Let me raise a few larger questions, Peter, and maybe you could respond to this, because on our previous week's show, we had Paul Kimball, who made a statement that he felt that maybe you had gone around and released information about the O'Hare case prematurely. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, I heard some of Mr. Kimball's comments. 
All I can say is I'm very disappointed by what he had to say. Many of his statements were factually incorrect. I mean, just dead, dead wrong. It is significant that he made those statements about me and about our organization and about NARCAP and the personnel there without ever having talked to us or corresponded with us. I don't know where he came up with his statements, where he came up with the information that made him feel comfortable to make his statements, but much of what he said in that interview is just dead wrong. And I hesitate to get into details because uh, we, could, we could spend hours and hours picking that state, uh, many of those statements apart, but I would prefer to talk about the UFO phenomenon. Well, I'll tell you what, rather than yeah, go into an extensive list, Peter, could you mention maybe one or two items quickly before we go into our station break? Well, he accused me that, of, guess it is an accusation of being a conspiracy monger. He didn't cite where he uh, got that information. That appears to be his interpretation of whatever it was I said. He also uh, asserts that we should not have released this information as prematurely, to use his term, as we did. In point of fact, the release of information was a very well-coordinated event that NARCAP and I and MUFON agreed upon on the day of the incident. So uh, I'm very disappointed in Mr. Kimball's uh, statements. My surmise is he would probably best remain in the field of the arts. I guess he's a film director and stay out of science or making any comments about how scientists do their work. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, and we're talking to Peter Davenport. He's director of the National UFO Reporting Center. Peter, before we go on to our last two segments, anyone who has a sighting, they've had some kind of anomalous event, how do they contact you directly? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, they can always call the hotline if they've had a recent UFO sighting, that is, within the last 24 to 48 hours, they can always call the hotline number, which is area code 206 Seven two two three thousand. And the one thing I would like to encourage all of our listeners to do, if they believe that they've had a sighting of a genuine UFO at any time in their life, whether it's yesterday or whether it's 40 years ago, is to be sure to record that information in written form. And they can do that on our website at ufocenter.com. Just one word, UFO Center. We have an online report form there. They could just type out a paragraph or two or three, whatever it takes for them to describe clearly and thoroughly their sighting and the incident in general and send that report to us and we will post it publicly and let the world know about what it is they've seen. Do you have field investigators in your organization to go out and talk to people about these things? In some instances, I have gone out and done personal invest investigation, but technically speaking, the National UFO Reporting Center is not an investigative body. We are first and foremost a conduit for information. <laughs> Information, hopefully accurate information uh, about alleged UFO sightings. However, I work very closely with organizations such as NARCAP and the Mutual UFO Network and the Center for UFO Studies. So if we receive a report that we
we feel warrants follow-up investigation, I will, as I've done in the case of the O'Hare sighting, lateral that case to people who are in a much better situation to investigate, turn over all the information to them, and they will send out their investigators to start collecting additional information and finding other witnesses. How did you first get involved in what people would regard as an unusual line of work? <laughs> it is to be very line. understated. <laughs> I uh, sometimes wish I had never, ever even thought about a UFO because UFO work, investigation, and collection of data can be very, very frustrating. I think it is correct to say I became interested in UFOs on the 13th of July, 1954, when I saw a UFO over the St. Louis airport together with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other witnesses. In point of fact, my father was in the airport tower at the time, and he saw the object with binoculars. Nobody knows what that object was, but it was very dramatic. A bright red object, the apparent size of a full moon in the night sky. It was so bright that it was casting red light all over the drive-in theater where I and my mother and brother were located at the time. And I think I've been fascinated by the concept of UFOs or what these UFOs are ever since. So that, that takes it back about 52 and a half years. I have had a couple other sightings, which I consider to be very unusual, but how I became director of the National UFO Reporting Center, uh, it was an incident that occurred quite by accident, and I talked to the founder of the UFO Center, Bob Gribble, one Friday night uh, at about the time he was thinking of shutting it down, and I said, you know, Bob, that is a job that I would consider doing, and he said instantly, Peter, it's yours, and I should have known better than to accept it. <laughs> I remember Bob Gribble, yeah. Wonderful guy. He was a, a magnificent investigator, and he did a wonderful job of running the center for 20 years. So you've got it. Among all the cases you've explored, what do you think? I won't say there's, there's a one case or there are 10 cases. What do you think of some of the top cases, the things that really make you feel there's something important to the UFO mystery? Absolutely. I can answer that very quickly, and that is the Phoenix Lights event of March 13, 1997. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of it. was without a doubt the most dramatic UFO event that I am aware of in the history of ufology, going back to the 24th of June, 1947, which is when all of this started. Uh, the events over Phoenix, which lasted for about 90 minutes, the objects were seen, we suspect by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, were unambiguously anomalous could not have been any kind of terrestrial aircraft that we're aware of. It was an immense event. Some of the other cases that come to mind are the two immense flashes that occurred over the southwestern United States on August 15, 1999. Uh, it was a Sunday night, about 11.18 p.m. that Sunday. Uh, we have no idea what those flashes were, but they cannot be ascribed to a meteoric event. They cannot be ascribed to any kind of conventional aircraft that I'm aware of, and that was a good one. Another one is a case that I alluded to earlier in the program that occurred over the eastern United States. I know the date quite well. It was Friday morning at 40 minutes past midnight, the 25th of August, 1995. The object was actually captured on film by a television crew. I've shown that footage many, many times at public presentations and played the tapes of what people had to report about it. And the interesting thing about that object is that it 
stopped very close to the Pennsylvania Turnpike near Breezewood, Pennsylvania, and that was a very dramatic event as well. Peter, I'm dying to ask you about something. It's, it's slightly off topic, but not exactly. On your main webpage at the very bottom of the page, there's a notice about your moving from Seattle to uh, your moving. The, and this is something that I have personally fantasized about for years when I, found, I first read about this in Popular Science magazine, I don't know how many years ago, the idea of buying a decommissioned uh, missile base. Yep. And and these things are available, and, and people are converting them into living and working facilities. And uh, two questions. A, could you tell us a little bit about this? And B, I noticed that the address is in Davenport, Washington. Did they name <laughs> Did you get your own town name for this? No, I did not. That's uh, coincidental. Really? The missile site that I purchased just 10 months ago happened to be very close to Davenport, Washington. So... <laughs> Not only am I Peter Davenport, but my mailing address is in Davenport, Washington. People can see that address on the front, on the homepage of our website. Yeah, yeah. But yes, March of last year, 2006, I purchased after a four-year pursuit of owning a missile site. I finally got a very short opportunity to buy one, and I did purchase it. And I am converting it into not only a residence, but home for the National UFO Reporting Center. And sometime this year, when a person calls the National UFO Reporting Center, the call will be taken in the missile room of a former ICBM missile base. Whoa. I just uh, think here, Peter, that you grow up saying, you know what, when I say reach a certain age, I want to own a missile center, a guided (laughs) missile center. This has got to be something I aspire to. Well, This uh, is about as cool as it gets. I'll give you a, a guided tour of a very ugly, very dark, very dirty missile site, which I'm in the process of turning into my home. It's uh, sort of exciting, uh, sort of intimidating, given the expense and the amount of work that's going to have to be done, but that's what I've taken upon myself to do, and uh, that's what I'm engaged in currently. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at the com. that's news at the com. and don't forget to check out our website at the com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums also please patronize our sponsors tell them that you heard their ads on the paracast they'll appreciate it and we will too you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney never know what's going to happen next. 
We've taken it upon ourselves to call this the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. And we're talking with Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. If you go to ufocenter.com, you can go and report a sign that you might have had or click on the link we have at thepowercast.com. David? Peter, I want to ask one, again, it's going to sound like a silly question, but how do you get pizza delivery out there? <laughs> Some of my best neighbors are coyotes, quail, wild turkey, uh-huh. hawks and owls and all sorts of uh, wonderful creatures. They're good well, neighbors, actually. Do you think you might attract some UFOs out there? I hope not. Uh, I don't like to be around them, frankly. They're uh, they're dangerous. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, you just just hit something there. Uh, okay, you're, they're dangerous, UFOs. Why are they dangerous? Potentially dangerous. Uh, people have been injured. People have been made to disappear in the presence of these things. The case of the, the well-known case, the celebrated case, the Australian flight instructor, young 20-year-old flight instructor, his name was Frederick Valentich, who disappeared during a flight from Kings Island up to Melbourne Airport is a case in point. Also, I believe uh, I mailed to you gentlemen a statement of the the peculiar, profoundly peculiar death of Mr. Todd Sees in Pennsylvania. It was August 4th, 2002, is in my view an unsettling case, principally because we know that police and the FBI and medical examiner were involved in this case. A man's body was found grossly disfigured, so disfigured that not even his family members could recognize it as being the remains of their late father. It is a very interesting case that I've talked about for well over four years now, trying to bring it to the attention of the American public. I am not one of those people who think that UFOs come here to the planet Earth to in any way help mankind. Some people are of that opinion. I am not of that opinion, and I think my position on this issue is similar to that of Dr. David Jacobs, who has written so extensively on the abduction subject. On the show here, Peter, we've had a number of guests talking about a variety of different theories of the sourcing of these things, and and two things seem to to come out in these discussions. One, that the potential sources for these visitors are more than a few. Um, that there are a variety of potential realities behind this phenomenon that uh, we're not sure where these things come from. And and in fact, given the number of cases, given the variety of craft witness, and I think that if you look through your database, it becomes pretty clear that while there are archetype shapes that are invoked, the disc shape, the cigar shape, the variety, the differentiation between the episodes is, is pretty severe. People have seen a lot of different types of things. And it's something that we, we've talked about a lot on the show is the potential for some of these visitors to potentially, and, and I'm not saying we know this because we really don't know anything about this topic, but potentially some of these visitors might be from the planet Earth itself, crypto-terrestrial entities. How do you account for the vast variety of different types of ships, and even within a certain category, let's say discs, a vast number of different types of details that would indicate that it's not just one race or one set of individuals. Yeah, I agree. We're not dealing with just one type of UFO, or if they have occupants, and I presume they do, one Mm -hmm. 
strain or one species, let's call them, of alien. My growing suspicion, based again on precisely what you've just cited, the diversity of craft that are reported on our website and many other websites dedicated to ufology, strongly suggests to me that we may live in a galaxy or a universe that is highly populated, that has many different civilizations throughout it, and that what we are seeing is essentially different type of craft that have been produced by different technologies and different civilizations. That is what I suspect, and this is pure surmise, mm -hmm. what I suspect we will find in the final analysis is that we do not live in a galaxy that is devoid of other intelligent life. I suspect we will discover that we live in a galaxy that is perhaps even teeming with not just life, but probably intelligent life. But again, I close by saying that is pure surmise based on the evidence that has come to me and continues to come to the National UFO Reporting Center on a steady basis. Now, Peter, you've heard the theories that have been voiced, and of course David mentioned one of them, the crypto-terrestrial, and another one being alternate realities where we are dealing with other dimensions in addition to other worlds. And have you explored that arena? Are you even at this point? At a well, from my vantage point as premature, I try to limit myself to just that information that I know for sure, or think I know for sure. With regard to conjecture, there are a great many people who can conjecture as to what the significance of all this data is, I try to avoid that. I consider myself first and foremost to be a scientist and a reporter of hopefully accurate data. Of course, on that point, let me say it's sometimes very difficult or even impossible to know what data is accurate and what is not. There are many, many, many theories that we hear all day, every day about what the significance of the UFO phenomenon is. I simply don't know the answer to that question. And and again, I hesitate to conjecture because I simply don't know. I try to separate that information that I know from that that I don't know, and I try to limit myself to the former, not the latter. You know, it's a common perception, I guess, amongst people who are skeptical that a lot of these cases are made up. So of all the cases you get at National UFO Reporting Center, how many do you find are really hoaxes and not actual objects worthy of further investigation? Well, there are many types of cases submitted to us or reports submitted to us that we don't post to our website or which we don't find particularly useful. People will report anything. There are hoaxes. That's one of the tragedies of my job. But in addition to that, there are cases of mistaken identity. People will send us photo after photo after photo of objects that they couldn't identify. Therefore, they ask rhetorically, could it be a UFO? Well, it could, but the photo is not distinct enough for us to establish whether the object is a hummingbird or whether it's an alien ship from the Pleiades. So you have to reject that information. The Definitely the alien say, ships from the Pleiades. That's certainly one we have to well, reject. I used to say that 70% of the information or cases that came to us were not of genuine UFO sightings. It may be as high as 90%. I've never measured it. It's that residual, the 10% of the cases that are really very interesting, like the case at O'Hare Airport.
airport two months ago. Very interesting case, again, because of the qualifications of the witnesses, the numbers of witnesses, the consistency between the reports, the fact that federal employees saw the object, FAA personnel, and so on and so forth. So that's the type of case we try to focus on here. That makes perfect sense. Thanks, Peter, for coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.